An aptronym is a personal name that's peculiarly suited to its possessor, its owner. I have a few examples of aptronyms. How about the pro basketball player named Tim Duncan? He's Duncan. Tim Duncan. Got it? Or the BBC meteorologist Sarah Blizzard. Or the Australian tennis player Margaret Court. Or the baseball player named Prince Fielder. How about the Starbucks executive, Rosalind Brewer? I like that one. Or the Jamaican sprinter, Usain Bolt. The name Bolt's a good name for a sprinter. Or what about the White House press secretary, Larry Speaks? Or that famous sanitary engineer, Thomas Crapper? Now that's a fitting aptronym. Or British poet William Wordsworth. Or how about the baseball pitcher? I like this one, John Outman. A good name for a pitcher. And of course, my favorite, attorney at law, Sue Yu. <laughs> I could go on and on, but I'm sure you get the idea. Some names fit their subject perfectly, but Peter is not one of those names. Petros means rock, and yet the disciple of Jesus named Peter was more like shifting sand. Peter was impulsive, inconsistent, unstable. Rather than rock-like, Peter was the picture of instability. And yet Jesus named Peter not after what he was at the time he received his name, but after what he would become once transformed by the Savior and his Spirit. Two events turned shifty Simon into powerhouse Pete. First, on the day of Pentecost, a fearful Peter was infused with power from on high. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he began to preach God's word with boldness. Peter received power at Pentecost, and he received perspective at Calvary's cross. Before the cross, Peter believed in a Messiah who would reign and rule, not suffer and die. He was never more confused than the night his king knelt to wash his feet. It wasn't until after the resurrection that Peter realized the path to God's glory runs through the humility of the cross. We'll reign with Jesus, but first we die to our pride and we learn to serve. And by the time Peter pins this epistle, that perspective has taken hold of his entire life. This letter is a message of hope, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. Now, we're not told when 1 Peter was written, but I believe it was penned when Peter was in prison in Rome, awaiting his execution before Caesar Nero. In chapter 5, verse 13, Peter sends greetings from those in Babylon. It could be that Peter was in literal Babel. It's far more likely that he was speaking of spiritual Babylon or Rome at the time, the capital of paganism and idolatry. Well, we know that Peter and Paul were prison mates between the years 63 to 64 AD. And this might explain why 1 Peter is so similar to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Perhaps the two apostles were in prison together. They may have even swapped notes and thoughts uh, during these days. 
We also know that both Peter and Paul were executed shortly after this imprisonment. When Peter wrote this letter, he knew that death was on the horizon, yet his eyes were fixed beyond the horizon to heaven's glories. It's safe to say if Paul was the apostle of faith and John was the apostle of love, then Peter was the apostle of hope. Peter became solid as a rock when he looked beyond this life and anchored his hope in eternity. Well, verse 1 begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Jerusalem visitors who witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and heard Peter preach were from some of these cities, Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, as well as Phygria and Pamphylia, which were cities of Galatia. They were the pilgrims mentioned here. After their conversion at Pentecost, many of these new believers probably stayed in Jerusalem to grow in their faith. They may have been discipled by Peter. But eventually they dispersed and went back home. Apparently, though, Peter never lost touch with these saints. For here he writes a letter to them encouraging them in the faith. And the first thing he does is he lists the blessings that these and every believer has in Christ Jesus. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Notice the Father has chosen us. The Spirit lays claim to us as his own or sanctifies us. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Notice all three members here of the Trinity take part in our salvation. We're chosen, we're claimed, and we're cleansed. And then blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, or literally We've been born again. You know, there's an old saying, born once, die twice. But born twice, die once. In Christ, we have received eternal life. Since God is a trinity, and since we are made in his image, it's not surprising that we humans are also three in one. We are body, soul, and spirit. Every human being is like a three-stroke engine. We have three cylinders, you could say. But here's the problem. Most human beings run on only two of their three cylinders. Our body is alive. Our soul, which is our mind and our emotions, is alive. But our spirit is dead. And thus we sputter, we misfire, we limp along in life. Yet when Jesus enters us, he quickens our dead spirit, and he infuses into us his life. We are born again spiritually. Now we can run as we were made on all three cylinders, body, soul, and spirit. And we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus has given us a living hope. You know, it was the Italian poet, Dante, 
in his divine comedy, who hung a foreboding inscription above the door of death. The warning read, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. Death is the great spoiler. It separates lovers and it creates orphans. It slams the door on opportunities and causes vast potential to vanish instantly before our eyes. It cuts short the promise of a blissful future. Most of all, death chokes out hope. But we as believers in Jesus can stare death in the face and still maintain a living hope. For our Lord has overcome death, hell, and the grave. When Jesus rolled the stone from the mouth of the grave, he exited never to die again. He resurrected hope for all people. Through his triumph, his followers now have the hope of sharing in his supernatural life. We have been born again. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Earthly riches lose their luster. Their value depreciates. Own any stocks these days? Their glory fades away. Whereas God's blessings are permanent and priceless. In fact, there is an incorruptible inheritance with your name on it, reserved for you in heaven. He says, for you yourself are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, when my children were little, they would always ask, Daddy, will you hold this for me? I think it's one of the things I miss most, holding their stuff whether it was their money or their baseball glove or their jacket or their Bible. Daddy, would you hold this for me? If it was an item they didn't want to lose, they would trust it to their dad. And you are an item that God doesn't want to lose. So much so that he promises to hold on to you, to keep you by the power of God. You can rest assured that your heavenly father will hold on to you. And then he says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, from the beginning, Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But his concept of the Messiah's mission was transformed by Calvary's cross. Yes, one day Messiah will reign in glory. But there is a grieving that comes before the glory. The cross precedes the crown. All faith has to be tried before it's to be rewarded. And Peter here sees our faith like gold. You see the refiner, he turns up the heat and he melts the metal so that he can pick out the dross. And this is how God works in us. He turns up the heat of hardship and he melts our pride, our self-sufficiency so that he can then eliminate the impurities from our lives. And how does the goldsmith know when the gold has been properly refined? Well, I've been told it's when he can see his reflection 
in the surface of the metal. Likewise, Jesus knows when we've been adequately refined, when a Christ-likeness surfaces in our lives. He sat by a furnace of sevenfold heat as he watched as the precious ore, and closer he bent with a searching gaze as he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test, and he wanted the finest of gold to mold as a crown for the king to wear, set with gems of a price untold. So he laid out gold in the burning fire, though we wanted his hand to stay, and he watched the dross that we had not seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright, but our eyes were so dim with tears, we saw the fire, not the master's hand, and questioned with anxious fears." Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form above that bent over the fire, though unseen by us, with looks of ineffable love. Can we think it pleases his loving heart to cause us a moment of pain? Ah, no, but we saw through the present loss the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with a watchful eye with a love that is so strong and sure, and his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. And I am most moved by that final line, his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Perhaps today you're in the crucible of tribulation, and in the genuineness of your faith is being tested Oh, sure, you'll serve God when it benefits you. Who wouldn't? But what happens in the heat of adversity? How genuine is your faith? Let's trust the refiner. He knows just how much heat is needed to purify our faith. Well, Peter continues, verse 8. He says, whom having not seen, you love. He's speaking of Jesus. We can't see him. We don't touch him. We don't hear him audibly, but that doesn't mean he's not there. It's through faith that we can sense his presence and know his love in our hearts. It's by faith. Helen Keller once said, the best and most beautiful things in life cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. And this is true spiritually. He says, through now, though now you do not see him, yet believing You rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. You see, a heart that's primed with faith overflows with joy. Though not seen, still the powerful presence of Jesus is capable of fueling a heart with joy and filling it up with God's glory. He says in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now understand, the New Testament speaks of our salvation in different phases. Embrace Christ as your Lord and you're saved immediately from the penalty of sin. As you grow in Christ, you're saved from the power of sin. Then one day you'll enter the gates of heaven and be saved from this wicked world and the presence of sin. But at every stage of salvation, we are saved by grace through faith. And this is why it's so essential to continue in our faith. 
As we've talked about many times before, faith is not a one-time possession. It's a mindset that we cultivate and grow and develop in our lives. He says in verse 10, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, what the Hebrew prophet said about the Messiah is exactly what the ministers of the gospel are now preaching to them about Jesus. There was no contradiction in their message. The gospel of Jesus is not a man-made invention. It was Holy Spirit sent. And then Peter adds, the gospel reveals things which angels desire to look into. Did you know that the gospel is what intrigues even the angels? You know, it must have stunned the heavenly host when the eternal king humbled himself and became a man. It must have horrified every angel in the universe when they saw God let Jesus be nailed to the Roman cross. For thousands of years now, the angels have tried to comprehend the depth of the love of God that God has for human creatures made from the dust. They can't figure it out. I imagine the angels are like the old Star Trek's Dr. Spock. They're logical, non-emotive Vulcans. The angels have a hard enough time grasping the divine emotive called love. But grace, love that's undeserved, this is totally beyond their understanding. Why would God love creatures that are so unlovable? And if angels spend all of their time pondering grace, wouldn't it be worth our while to do the same? He says in verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. Buckle up, man. Get serious here. Let's get serious about God's grace. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Recall this word holy, it means to reserve or to treat as special. You know, usually when we think of holy objects, we think of relics that are said to possess some kind of supernatural quality. You know, like the Ark of the Covenant or the Shroud of Turin or even the Holy Grail in the Indiana Jones movie. But any item can be made holy simply by dedicating it to God. Say I have a coffee mug that I refill every morning. I drink from it every time I spend time with God. I use it exclusively for my moments with God. To me, that's what makes it a holy mug. Well, likewise with people. You and I aren't holy because we possess some kind of super spiritual quality. 
No, we're holy because our lives are reserved for God's purposes. Look into that face and what do you see? You see a holy mug. That's a holy mug right there. Oh, yes, it's just a plain old mug, but it belongs to God. It's now his mug, and that's what makes anything holy. It says in verse 17, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, in Christ, we have been redeemed. To us today, this word redeemed is a religious word. It's a church word. We rarely associate it with anything in everyday life. But in the Roman world, this word redeem was what sparked instant hope. The empire's 60 million slaves went to bed each night dreaming of redemption. That somehow they or someone they knew would purchase their freedom. Just a few coins would redeem or would purchase a Roman slave. But freedom from sin is much more costly. It requires the perfect blood of an innocent lamb. Our redemption hasn't been paid with precious metals, Peter's saying. But it's been paid with the precious blood of Jesus. And in light of what Jesus paid to redeem you and I, we should conduct our stay here on earth in fear, he says, in fear of displeasing him. For he says in verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The cross of Christ was in the heart of God prior to earth's foundations. Now his love has been revealed, and we believe. And since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. God has shown such a great love for you and me. Now the least that we can do is to love one another in return. And then he says in verse 23, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Now from the moment that you and I are born, we start to die. A flower blooms, but then it slowly fades away. And so do we. There's an old Yiddish proverb. A grandmother becomes feeble. Her grown daughter gives her a wooden bowl that trembling hands cannot break. The old woman dies and the bowl is discarded. But the granddaughter retrieves it. The bowl, she knows, will be needed again. We are all eventually going to die. You know, scientists still don't understand the mystery of aging. Normal human cells can grow in tissue cultures and reproduce for many generations. And then one day, without explanation, for no apparent reason, they start to degenerate and die. 
It's as if the human cell has been pre-programmed to die. It's as if death were written into the genetic language that governs the fertilized egg. It's as if a human seed or cell possesses a built-in time clock, which causes it to shut down at a predetermined point in a person's life. Well, the observation of the scientist only confirms the declaration of Scripture. For human seed is corruptible. It does deteriorate. Physically, we are all born to die. But spiritually, we are born again to live forever. For the new birth results not from corruptible seed, but from incorruptible seed. It's through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Spiritual life occurs in a human being when the word of God takes root in a repentant heart. And since the seed of God's word abides forever, the life it produces in us is eternal life. He says, because all flesh is as grass... In all the glory of man, as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. One of the most powerful visuals I've ever seen was at a local funeral I once attended. After preaching a forceful message, the officiating pastor, he walked off the platform and he went to escort the body up the aisle. But as he walked past the casket, he reached over and he plucked one of the blossoms from the flower arrangement that adorned the top of the casket. And in such dramatic fashion, he wadded up that flower petal and he threw those petals on the floor of the church. And then he quoted this verse, the glory of man as the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I'd suggest we all build our lives on God's word, not on earthly glory. Well, are you enjoying 1 Peter? How about chapter 2? Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now we've been born again. What does that make us? That makes us spiritual babies, spiritual newborns. And have you ever seen a newborn? Do you know what a newborn does? All day long, a newborn roots. Have you ever watched a baby root? Its little mouth starts groping and sucking, searching for its mother's nourishment. Rooting is its one pursuit. And this is how we should seek the Lord when it's spiritual feeding time rather than look to worldly pleasures. We need to root for the Lord and for the things of God. We need to satisfy our tastes only in him. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. There was a legend associated with Solomon's temple that during its construction, the cornerstone was quarried first. But when it arrived on the construction site, the builders didn't recognize its importance and they tossed it aside. It wasn't until the structure was nearly complete 
and they needed the cornerstone that they realized their mistake. And they raced to find the stone that they had rejected. Indeed, this is how the builders of Judaism treated Jesus. They didn't realize that he was God's chief cornerstone. So they rejected him. But one day, and I believe soon, the Jews are going to realize their mistake, repent of their sin, and receive Jesus as the chosen of God. He says in verse 5, you also as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Today there on top of Mount Moriah exists the stones, the limestones of the former Jewish temple. That Jewish temple was massive. It had these massive limestone blocks that adorned its walls. But the New Testament temple The spiritual house that's being built today is made up of live stones, not limestones. And those live stones are you and I, the church. Hey, thanks to Jesus' sobering effect, many of us have gone from being stoned to becoming stones. Each of us now plays a role in the church. God's spirit is fitting us together. Don't be off the wall. Find your place on the wall. Be part of the house that Jesus is building. He says, for we are also a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament sacrifices were the physical offerings of the bulls and goats, which are no longer needed since Jesus has become our final sacrifice. But in the New Testament, we can make spiritual sacrifices Romans 12 verse 1 tells us that we should present our bodies a living sacrifice. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13 lists three other sacrifices. The sacrifice of praise, good deeds that we might do, even financial offerings and support that we might give. And then he says, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. We honor God when we make our sacrifices of praise and our sacrifices of giving. And then he says in verse 6, therefore it is also contained in the scripture, and here he quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 16, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus is that precious cornerstone. He's chosen and he's solid. Rest on Jesus and you'll never regret doing so. He says, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, and here he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And Isaiah 8, verse 14 reads, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And thus Peter concludes, they stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. In two verses here, Peter sums up the Jews' rejection of Jesus. And he does so in the words of their very own prophets. See, God intended for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone of his spiritual temple. The rock on which the rest of the house could rest was Jesus. And Jesus is a big rock. He can't be ignored. 
Refuse to make him the cornerstone of your life and you'll trip over him. You'll be offended by him. Bow your knee to Jesus. Don't stumble over him. And then he says in verse 9, but you, those who trust in Jesus, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You know, in the Old Testament, there was no such thing as a royal priesthood. Priests came from the tribe of Levi, whereas the kings descended from the lineage of Judah. But as Christians, we are both royalty and priestly. One day, we're going to rule with Jesus. Today, like priests, we are building bridges. We are helping to reconcile people with God. Well, we're also a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I'm afraid that some of you don't realize what you've stepped into. That when you became a Christian, what you became a part of. Biblically speaking, prior to Christianity, there were two types of people in the world. Two racial groups, as it were. There were Jews, and there were everyone else, or Gentiles. But in Christ, God has now established a new race. A third breed, you might say. He has created a people who were not a people, made up of both Jews and Gentiles who have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. That's you and me. We've become part of that new race. And rather than blend in, our job is to stick out. We need to display God's values of love and truth. We should live out his priorities, the priorities of heaven, even here on earth. For he tells us, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, as Christians, we are pilgrims on this earth. We're just passing through. This world is not our home. I'm reminded of the mother who was on a trip she was on a cruise ship out on the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Suddenly, the storm began to rage, and the boat was in danger of sinking. And yet, this woman exuded such calm and confidence. Well, when the ordeal was over, the captain asked the lady her secret. And she stated, well, I've got two daughters. One lives in New York, and the other lives in heaven. I knew I'd see one of my girls in a few hours, and it didn't really matter which one. Hey, we're all just sojourners on a journey. We're merely passing through. So he tells us, don't get bogged down in selfish lust, which war against the soul. You know, imagine getting your kids all ready for that family portrait, you know, that once every 10-year family portrait that you get done. Imagine you get the kids all ready. They're all dressed up. They're all cleaned up. You work overtime to get the job done. And then on the way to the car, Junior jumps in a mud puddle. And little sissy spills a drink on her dress. And you think, can't you kids stay clean enough just to get to the car? 
And this is what Peter is asking God's kids. Guys, you're headed to heaven. Can't you stay clean until you get there? He says in verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now certainly we are not of this world. But while passing through, we need to obey its laws. And here Peter spells out the divine right of government. God has established human government for two purposes. To punish evil and to promote good. Now, the government's good at punishing evil, not so much about promoting good. I wish we were better. I did read, though, about the police in South Windsor, Connecticut. They have started pulling over cars and handing out tickets that read, your driving was great, and we really appreciate it. How's that for a nice ticket? They're now passing out $2 rewards for obeying the speed limit, for wearing your seatbelt, for using your turn signals. Any Snellville cops listening to this? Please take heed. We think of the government as a tool to punish evil, and it is, but God also intended for it to encourage good. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free Yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. In other words, Uncle Sam could use some good Christian brothers. We need to live a practical holiness that shuts up the cynic and that looks out for the common good of society. And understand Peter's words here, to honor the king, not only apply to honorable kings, but to dishonorable kings also. For remember, who was the king in Peter's day? The emperor Nero. And if a Christian can honor Nero, then we can honor the people over us. Even when we don't respect the person, we can still honor the position. It says in verse 18, servants... Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, even the rotten boss that you got. A servant, or we could say a Christian employee, should be a good employee regardless of the character of their boss. He says, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Living in a fallen world, children of God who stay faithfully or faithful to their biblically informed conscience will at times be at odds with the world and its values. Suffering for what's right is commonplace and, will, and is commendable. We should expect some persecution. He says, for what credit is it though when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. See, I know a few self-righteous, unloving Christians who get laughed at for their hypocrisy, and yet they stick their chest out and they claim that they're being persecuted for Jesus' sake. 
No, you're not. You're getting persecuted because you're a jerk. See, rejoice if you're being hassled for your good conduct and severe faith, sincere faith. Repent if you're just acting like a snob. He says in verse 21, For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leading us, and leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in him, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, Jesus is the ultimate example on how to handle suffering. He let the rage end with him. He let the rage end with him. See, the world we live in is great at swapping insult for insult. You know, you get slapped around at work, and so what do you do? Well, you come home and you slap around the kids. And then they go out and they slap around the neighbor's kids. And the whole world is just plain slap happy. See, hatred passes from person to person to person until it reaches a Christian. And there it should stop. For we have been called to imitate Jesus. For when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was slapped, he didn't slap back. He returned love for hate. And as his disciples, so should we. It's the weak who have to retaliate. This is how Jackie Robinson broke Major League Baseball's color barrier. His general manager, Branch Rickey, told Jackie he had to be strong enough not to fight back. When others went low, he stayed high, and he won. It takes strength to absorb a blow and to transform its impact into the opposite response. Learn to retaliate in love. And Jesus, verse 24, himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Understand God's plan for dealing with our sin is the cross. The penalty for sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin were all addressed on the cross. Jesus bore our sin and paid its penalty. In him, a part of us, the old man, dies to sin. Thus its power is broken in our lives. And his stripes, the lacerations, the wounds that he took on the cross, ensure our healing. As long as we live in a world where sin and its effects are present, God has a means of making us whole, and that's his cross. He says, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, they say sheep are so dumb, they'll follow each other over a cliff if you don't stop them. And we are like dumb sheep. We are constantly losing our way and going astray. That is until Jesus, the good shepherd, rescued us from destruction and brought us back into the fold. 
And so let me close with a final question. Can you name the only man-made thing in heaven? Well, the only man-made item in heaven are the scars that Jesus bore in his own body. We nailed Jesus to the cross. It was history's ultimate tragedy, yet God has used it to engineer the ultimate blessing for his pardon and his healing and his redemption and new life have all come from that cross and have been made available to us. So, from one dumb sheep to another, Christianity is not a bad deal. <laughs> a new power and a new perspective changed Peter, and it'll change us. Trust in Jesus' work on the cross and trust in his spirit to work in you.